Our scripture reading today comes from John 2, verses 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ community. Uh, my name's Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Leewood campus. And happy Super Bowl Sunday for those observing. Uh, this is my second winter in Kansas City, and a year ago today, there was a lot more red in the crowd. I remember that distinctly. And uh, so I know some of you won't be watching the game today because it's still a little too painful from a couple weeks ago. Uh, but last year, we were all watching. According to the website Sports Media Watch, in the Kansas City media market, Last year, 89% of the televisions that were in use at the time were tuned in to the Super Bowl. There was a lot of excitement around energy around the game, right up until about you know, five minutes or so into the first quarter. But uh, the Super Bowl, it's become, a, it's become kind of a national holiday, hasn't it? About 100 million people will watch the game tonight. And we'll be talking about it or about the commercials tomorrow around the water cooler. And it's a, it's a national event that we all experience together. Uh, but if you think the Super Bowl is a big deal, it's nothing compared to the holiday celebration that's occurring in Jerusalem in our text today. It's the, it's the Jewish Passover, and it's a big deal. If you want an idea of what this holiday was like, take the nostalgia of the Christmas season, combine that with the hope of the resurrection that we celebrate at Easter, Add in the national fervor of the 4th of July and the crowds of a Super Bowl victory parade, and you've got something like Passover in Jerusalem in the first century. And as an, as an observant Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth comes to town too. And he chooses this moment, this particular holiday weekend, to take his ministry public. So if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2, verse 13. It starts this way. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover it was one of the major festivals that was celebrated by the Jewish people. It was a time when the Jewish people journeyed from, to Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire, and they came to celebrate God's rescue of the Israelites from Egypt. Remember the, the Passover lamb and the blood on the doorposts and how God struck down the firstborn sons of Egypt and passed over the Israelite homes in the book of Exodus? The Passover celebrates God's rescue, God's salvation. But it doesn't just look backward to the past. It also looks forward. You remember what God did in the past, and that, that gives you hope or it gives you faith that God will do the same kind of thing in the future. 
And for Jews in the first century, they were very much waiting for God to do the same kind of thing. Long ago, God had delivered his people from an oppressive enemy, the Egyptians. And many Jews in, in Jesus' time were hoping that he would do the same thing to a new oppressor, the Romans. The Passover is not just a religious holiday, it's, it's a national holiday that each year rekindles hope that God would finally do what he had long ago promised to do, to rescue his people from their enemies, to put a proper king, the Messiah, on the throne, and to build the new temple that was promised by the prophet Ezekiel. Now, to be sure, there was a, a new temple building in Jerusalem, and it was actually an incredible work of architecture. We've got a video that's going to play for a second. You can kind of get a sense of uh, what this was like. This is an, an artist's rendering of it. But feel free to watch that while I, while I talk. So, so King Herod, he began uh, this construction project in the year 19 B.C., as a way to gain the support of the Jewish communities around the world. Herod was not a legitimate Jewish king. He, he was only part Jewish, and his ancestry did not trace back to the royal line of David. He was really just a Roman puppet king, and he was charged with keeping peace in a far-off and kind of problematic corner of their empire. And he figured that the best way to curry favor with the people in his charge was right by rebuilding their temple. The temple was not only central to the day-to-day the -day work of their religious system as the place where they went to make their sacrifices, but it was, it was also central to their national hope. Their hope that God's great new work of salvation for his people would coincide with the new temple that Ezekiel had foretold. So Herod was no dummy as a politician. He was ruthless and evil, but he was a shrewd politician. He understood all these dynamics, and so he builds the temple and he makes it as magnificent as possible, as you can see uh, from, uh, from this video. It was so magnificent that a few decades later, uh, a, a rebellion breaks out, a war breaks out in Israel, the, the uh, Jewish people rebel against the Romans, and uh, the Roman general Titus is sent to go and put down this rebellion. And uh, this is about just a few decades after Jesus' death. And when Titus's troops finally entered into Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple, he, he sees how magnificent it is, he, he tries to save it from looting and destruction, but he was unable to do so. His soldiers burned it to the ground, and it, it's never been rebuilt. And today, only parts of the Western Wall remain. So here comes Jesus to Jerusalem. It's during the Passover celebration, the time when the Jews remember God's first great work of national salvation, and hope that God will do it again in their own day. And where does Jesus go? To the temple. To the central religious and national symbol of that hope for God's rescue. Now, what's interesting to me is where Jesus doesn't go, because right next door to the temple is a Roman military base. You see, the Romans understood the significance of the temple, too. In order to keep peace in this part of their empire, they need to keep a close eye on what happens at this temple. A symbol of national pride can quickly become a rallying point for rebellion, which, in fact, again, would happen just a few decades later. And so they build a fort there, and they garrison troops there. And that Roman fort is meant to be a constant reminder to the Jewish people about who is really in charge. If you've ever visited a country that's ruled by a dictator, you've seen how this works. Those cities in, the, in those countries are filled with statues and billboards of the dictator. And there's a large and ruthless police pre presence. The dictator's face is everywhere. It's impossible to forget who is in charge. And with the police all around, there's always the chance that you're being watched. 
And so this Roman fort, it has the same function. So imagine you're a good first century Jew in Jerusalem for the Passover. And you head to the temple to make your sacrifice, and right next to it looms this fort, this reminder that you're not really free. Your movements are being observed. You're at the temple to remember God's centuries-old deliverance from an evil oppressor, and you're desperately hoping he'll do it again. When is he going to deliver us from this oppressor? In the midst of all that, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. His disciples have already identified him as the Messiah, the anointed one. And in chapter 1, his disciple Nathaniel called him the king of Israel. If the true king of Israel is here to deliver his people, surely he's going to overturn tables in the military fort, right? The Roman fort. But that's not where he goes. I don't think Jesus was naive about the injustice of the Roman Empire, just like he wasn't naive about the sin of the people he encountered, like the Samaritan woman we'll meet at the well in chapter 4. But what gets Jesus most upset is when religious leaders, people who are supposed to know better, who God has entrusted his people to, it's when those leaders fail in their responsibility that provokes Jesus, like we're about to see. Hypocrisy, injustice, and sin from irreligious people, that's to be expected. It's no surprise when the Romans sin. But hypocrisy, injustice, and sin among God's people, especially their leaders, that needs to be confronted. And that's what happens. So let's keep reading. Uh, Verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And what's going on? What are these people doing? Why are they selling animals and changing out money? Remember that Jews uh, from all over the empire have come to Jerusalem for this festival. And part of what they're here to do is offer sacrifices. Now, if I'm traveling from a long distance, is it easier for me to bring my animal with me or just to buy one when I get there? The animal could get injured or die along the way. If I'm taking a boat, I imagine that they charge extra for luggage like they do on our modern airlines, you know? You get one carry-on pigeon for free, but it's $50 to check a goat or something like that. And so it's probably easier for me just to, just to buy an animal to sacrifice when I get there. So this is a nice business opportunity for entrepreneurs in Jerusalem. You have crowds of people with a high demand for a product, and so you set up shop and you make a few bucks. It's a, it's a good deal. And the money changers are performing a similar service. Just like today, if you travel to a different country, you need to uh, exchange your, your money for the local currency. And that's what the money changers are for. There's a certain currency that's acceptable for the temple tax that needs to get paid. And so you exchange your coins for the acceptable currency. So like the people selling animals, the money changers are providing a necessary service. And let's keep reading. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Wow. Uh, This is a side of Jesus that we're not used to seeing. You know, what happened to the gentle and lowly Jesus of the great invitation? Is Jesus flying off the handle? You know, in his anger, has he lost self-control? Frankly, some of us love this side of Jesus. You know, this is a Jesus we can get behind because there are some tables in our world that are just begging to be flipped. And for others of us, this Jesus is scary. You know, maybe you had an unpredictable or volatile parent who could lose their temper at the drop of a hat. 
And this picture of Jesus brings those memories flooding back. So let's take our time here and, uh, and see if either of those portraits of Jesus is accurate. And the first thing that we're told happens once Jesus enters the temple is that he makes a whip of cords. So Jesus does not enter the temple armed. He has to make the whip there. In fact, it was against the law to bring a weapon into the temple, and a whip would have counted as a weapon. And during uh, uh, big festivals like Passover, there's actually a temple police force that's there to make sure people aren't, aren't breaking this rule. So Jesus wouldn't have been able to get a whip in the temple even if he wanted to. And so he makes one. And what would he have used to make a whip? What would have been there for him? It probably would have been straw or some kind of reed that's being used to feed the animals. So we, we shouldn't picture Jesus with like an Indiana Jones-style whip, you know. Uh, we should, he, he, Jesus' whip is, is not going to do any severe damage if it's made of straw. And what's the whip for? Well, he's probably not using it on the people who are selling animals and changing out coins. He's, he's got these big animals he needs to drive out. And so he, he uses a straw whip to move them along, right? And consider how long it would have taken to make this whip from straw. You know, I, I imagine Jesus sitting off to the side, carefully weaving the pieces together while the business of the noisy market goes on around him. But Jesus takes his time. This is a calculated move. And he's, he's not flying off the handle in a rage. Now, I don't want to downplay Jesus' hostility too much because he does overturn the tables and drive people out. Jesus is clearly angry. But I think it's important that we understand that Jesus' anger is always calculated, it's always self-controlled, and it's always precisely directed. But what's the problem, though? We've already said that these people are, who are selling the animals and the money changers, they're performing a necessary service to the pilgrims who have traveled this long distance. So what exactly does Jesus take issue with? There are actually a number of different suggestions out there. So some say that this is an enacted parable of judgment on the temple. The, the Old Testament prophets, they would do all kinds of strange and even sometimes gross things that were meant to serve as parables to the people who were willing to listen. For example, in, in Jeremiah 19, uh, God told his prophet Jeremiah to buy a clay jar and then to gather the leaders of Jerusalem around and then to smash the jar in their presence and then, he, and then go to the temple and preach a sermon to them. And in the sermon, uh, he says that, that God is going to smash the nation and the city in the same way that Jeremiah smashed the jar. So the smashing of the jar in Jeremiah 19 is a parable of God's judgment. So maybe Jesus is doing something similar here. Jesus' actions are a sign that the temple is now under God's judgment. By disrupting the sacrifices for a brief period, Jesus' actions point to the fact that God will soon bring that entire system to a halt by fulfilling its purpose in Jesus' own sacrifice. Another option is that Jesus is upset about some kind of economic injustice. When you read about Jesus clearing the temple in the other Gospels, there does seem to be a hint of this. As Jesus, he accuses the merchants of turning the temple into a den of robbers. So these folks are, they, that are selling, uh, are selling the animals, they're profiting off of their fellow Jews who are trying to fulfill the law by offering the required sacrifices. And this practice could be particularly egregious with regard to the poor. By taking an unfair profit, you're erecting a barrier that makes it that much harder and costly to follow God's command. I think that John's emphasis on those selling pigeons, which he, he mentions them twice, is a hint in that direction. Pigeons are the acceptable sacrifice uh, for the poor because they can't afford any, any animal that's bigger. 
And it's the people selling pigeons that Jesus is talking to when he says to stop turning his father's house into a market. It's like he's saying, stop taking advantage of the poor. There's a third option. A third option is that the problem isn't what the merchants are doing, but where they are doing it. Yeah, sure, these services are necessary, but you shouldn't be doing them in here. This is a place for worship, for contemplation, and you've turned it into a noisy market. And the place where the market would have been located was the, the outer court of the temple, the court where the Gentiles, who are, are non-Jews, who are, where they were allowed to come and worship. So here Jesus is saying, hey guys, this is the place where we're supposed to be welcoming outsiders to give them a chance to encounter the one true God. And instead there's this market. It's a barrier. It's okay to take this market outside, but don't do it in here. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson puts it this way, instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there's the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there's noisy commerce. Now, I don't think we can say for sure why Jesus clears the temple, uh, whether it's a, a parable of judgment or because the merchants are taking advantage of the poor or if they're creating barriers for the nations to come to God. Um, I actually think all, there are hints of all three here in this story, and I'm, I'm okay with, with them all being present. And so what do we learn from Jesus' actions we learn that it's really important to Jesus that everyone has access to God. So much so that in this one instance, Jesus makes quite a scene. For a few moments, Jesus interrupted the entire sacrificial system in order to make his point. He overturned tables. He drove out the animals. He confronted the people who were making it harder for the poor and for outsiders to come to God. Jesus fought to make God accessible to everyone. Now, I know the word fought is a strong word. I, I wrestled with whether to use it here. I actually spent 20 minutes looking for a better synonym on the internet. Uh, so be gracious to me. You know, preaching is difficult. But whether you like the word fought or not, the point I'm trying to make is that this is really, really important to Jesus. So important that it leads to this serious confrontation. Jesus never loses self-control here, but that doesn't mean he's not angry. This is a big deal. God wants everyone to be able to come to him. And when his own people, the people who ought to know better, make it more difficult, that gets him upset. And rightly so. Uh, Emily and I, uh, my wife Emily and I, have two boys who are nine and seven years old. And one of the things that we've had to learn as parents is how to discern a proper parental response to misbehavior. One of the things you have to discern when you're correcting your child is, you know, should they have known better? What's their actual level of responsibility here? And kids do all kinds of things that are really naughty or even dangerous to themselves. But you have to measure your response based on whether you've talked to them about it before. You can't get angry at your kid the first time they color on the walls or put on their mom's makeup or cut their younger sibling's hair or dump flour all over the kitchen floor or chase a ball into the street without looking or play in the mud outside and then walk through the living room with their shoes on. But the second or third or fifth or tenth time they do those things, you start to raise your voice, right? There comes a point when the child knows that the behavior is wrong and your correction becomes more strict. The first time they tramp mud through your living room, you tell them why they need to take their shoes off next time. The second or third time you remind them and maybe have them help you clean it up. But when it happens for the fifth time this week, maybe the kid needs a timeout. 
and you're justifiably a little angry, right? But now imagine a different scenario with me. Imagine Emily comes home uh, one day, and it's not the boys who are coloring on the walls of our, of our house, but, but it's me. The whole living room is decorated with my artwork. How is she going to respond to that? The tables are going to be flipped in our home, right? Sharp words will be spoken in my direction, and I'll be driven from the bedroom to the couch for a few nights. Is Emily's anger justified? Yes. You know, kids often misbehave because they don't know the rules or they're just not thinking things through. But there's no doubt that I ought to know better. And I, I really think that's the way to think about what Jesus is doing here in this story. These merchants and temple leaders, they have the entire Old Testament to tell them what this building is for. The temple is the place where everyone is supposed to encounter God. And, and these guys are making it harder on people. And the people they're making it harder on are those who already have it the hardest, the poor and the Gentiles. These merchants and temple leaders who let them be there ought to know better. Don't they know that God is for these people? Are there places in, in our church here or the, the church with a capital C or in our lives where we're putting up barriers that make it more difficult for people on the outside to encounter God? Think about all the conflicts that have taken place in churches over the years, over the color of the carpet, the style of worship, or what snacks should be available after the service. Church is a place to practice dying to self for the sake of others, even if that means you don't get the song that you want, or the sermon that you want, or the preacher that you want, or as many donut holes as you want. Or thinking more broadly, uh, when the church becomes more known for what it's against than for what it's for, when it's more known for political stances than for its conformity to the way and manner of Jesus. Those kinds of things can be a hindrance to people on the outside, and those are people that God is for. Another way of asking the question is, how can we make it easier for people on the outside to encounter God? And I'm excited about some of the ways that Christ Community is doing this right now. You know, partnering with Elam to send Bibles to Iran and with local organizations, as Don mentioned this morning, to welcome Afghan refugees to Kansas City. And our Olathe campus recently started uh, offering Spanish translations of their services uh, to allow Spanish speakers in their community to be able to participate. So how else can we make it easier for people? And who are the people who we look at and say, yeah, go ahead and put the money changers over there because they won't come to believe in God anyway? Jesus fights to make God accessible to everyone. He takes a risk in this confrontation. He's outnumbered, and that could quickly become a problem. And the Roman soldiers, remember, are right next door, and they could be called in. And they're not gentle with anyone that they perceive to be a threat to peace. Just keep reading the Gospel of John to see what I mean. So Jesus takes this risk. He fights. He makes things uncomfortable here in the temple. But that's nothing compared to the discomfort he's going to experience to build a new temple. Far more important than Jesus fighting for people that have access to God, Jesus died so that people could have access to God. And that's the next part of the story. Jesus, he stopped the commercial activity in the temple. The animals have been driven out. The money changers are picking up their coins off the ground. And now a Bible verse comes to the mind of his disciples. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
And this is a quotation from Psalm 69, where David is suffering because of his commitment to God. And the disciples remember that if David suffered for his zeal for God's house, so too might Jesus. When something is consumed, it's destroyed. You know, think of a piece of wood being consumed by fire or a piece of pizza by a teenager. Here's our first hint in John's gospel of Jesus' coming death. And while his disciples ponder this, Jesus gets confronted, probably by people who are among the temple leadership. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? First, uh, a quick note. Okay, when John uses, writes uh, the word uh, the Jews, he, he uses that phrase in a couple of different ways. Sometimes it refers to all Jews, like in verse 13, when uh, the, the Passover of the Jews just means the Jewish Passover. But other times, like here in verse 18, he has a more narrow meaning in mind. Clearly, all the Jews didn't ask Jesus this question. Neither does John mean that all the Jews wanted Jesus dead in chapter 19. His own disciples and family were Jewish, and they didn't want him killed. So when John says the Jews, he's referring to a subset here, usually their leaders. It's, it's a sad part of the history of the Christian church that at times confusion over John's language has been used to justify anti-Semitism and persecution of the Jewish people. John is not anti-Jewish. He was Jewish himself. And his gospel should never be used to justify anti-Semitism. But back to the story. What's interesting to me here about the response of these Jewish leaders is that they don't try to justify what they're doing. They don't try to justify the presence of the market in the temple. They don't question the position Jesus takes. They just question his authority. They want some kind of sign from Jesus that he has a right to do what he's doing. And maybe these leaders also have a sense that what they're doing, in the, that this market in the temple is wrong. That God didn't intend for the temple to be a market or a place where the poor are exploited or a barrier to the nations. We know from other sources that Jesus wasn't the only Jew at that time to have major problems with the temple establishment. For example, the community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls just uh, not long before Jesus was born, they thought that the entire temple establishment was illegitimate. And they actually expected that the temple in Jerusalem would eventually be replaced by one of their own. And so maybe these Jewish leaders that confront Jesus also sense that something is wrong with their temple and that it needed reform or or even replacement. And they want Jesus to prove that he's the right person to do it. Jesus, give us a sign and we'll believe you. Does that sound familiar to you? Who of us hasn't said something like that to Jesus at some point in our lives? Jesus, if you can just prove to me that I can trust you, then I'll believe. Prove to me that you are real and then I will believe. And sometimes, in his grace, Jesus actually does that. But here, Jesus refuses to give them a sign, at least not yet. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus says, hey, if you want a sign, then I'm actually going to put the ball in your court. Destroy this temple and watch me rebuild it. And of course, to his listeners, this is nonsense. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Sorry, Jesus, not going to happen. Look at the size of this building. When you guys saw that video, it would take longer than three days to destroy the temple, much less rebuild it. Herod started this project 46 years ago, and it's still not done. And it actually wouldn't be completed until just before the Romans destroyed it a few decades later. 
But Jesus is talking in a parable. There's a, there's a deeper meaning. And even the disciples didn't get it at the time. And so John clarifies for us what Jesus meant. And he lets us know that the disciples finally understood after Jesus was raised from the dead. He says, But he was speaking of the, about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. This, this isn't just a cute saying from Jesus. This is profound. Jesus is saying that there's a new temple. This old temple, it was good. It was a gift from God, and it served its purpose. But now something much better is here. The temple was the place where heaven and earth met, where God's presence dwelled. And Jesus says, now the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's presence dwells, is me. Jesus is God himself come to earth to be with his people, to rescue them, not only by fighting for them, but most importantly, by dying for them. The temple, for all its magnificence, it was filled with death. The temple was the place where animal sacrifices were done. The animal dies a bloody death in the place of the person who sacrifices it. Remember the Passover lamb. It died the death that God demanded from each household. And the temple, the oxen and the sheep and the pigeons, die the death that's deserved by the sacrificer. And Jesus interrupts that whole system, if only just for a few minutes, to foreshadow that that system has now reached its purpose in him. In the temple, Jesus' body, only one sacrifice is needed, and it's Jesus himself. And finally, the, the temple was the center of hope, as we talked about at the beginning. It was where the people went to remember God's amazing acts of salvation in the past and also looked forward to his next amazing act in the future. In proclaiming himself as the new temple, Jesus declares that that saving moment is finally here. Israel, if you want hope for the future, stop looking at the building and start looking at me. And for us here today in this room, it's no different. If you want hope for the future, look to Jesus. That hope is available right here and right now. Hope for forgiveness of sins. Hope for a relationship with the God of the universe. Hope for the life that, God, that, uh, that you were designed to live. And hope that one day, God himself will fix all that's wrong in this messed up world and that we will live with him forever. That's a hope worth living for. And for Jesus, it was a hope worth dying for. Let's pray to him now. Jesus, thank you for fighting for us. Thank you for making a way for each of us to have access to God and for confronting injustice when we try to erect barriers. And if we are doing the same thing today, we pray that you would confront us as well. And Jesus, thank you for being our perfect sacrifice, for laying down your own life that we might live with you in a renewed heaven and earth forever. And as you died for us, help us to die to ourselves on behalf of our friends and our families, our, neighbor, our neighbors and coworkers and fellow students, that they might experience your life as well. In Jesus' name, amen.